Hello. Welcome to the legends of King Arthur and his knights. Chapter 18. The Sad Boy. We have met most of the greatest and most important of the characters of Arthurian legend. There are just a few who are yet to appear in our long story. Most of the important knights we have not met, like Sir Percival and Sir Galahad, we will encounter as we follow the story. Now, though, we must go back a little in time. We must travel back to the time when Merlin was still alive and King Arthur was a new king, and find out about the birth of the only knight great enough to match Sir Lancelot blow for blow. In the years when Arthur was still new on the throne of Britain, there was, on the throne of the kingdom of Leones, a king called Meliodas. Leones is thought to be the area known as Brittany in France. Meliodas fell in love with and then married Isabella of Cornwall. Isabella was the daughter of the old king of Cornwall, Felix. She was the sister of a man we have already met, King Mark. Meliodas and Isabella were very much in love and their marriage was a very happy one. After a few years, Isabella became pregnant and there was much rejoicing at court. Now, there may have been rejoicing at court, but our story has so far shown us that our heroes have very rarely have settled childhoods and their mothers generally endure significant suffering. Sadly, it was no different this time. An enchantress fell in love with King Meliodas. The king was perfectly happy with his wife and his head was not turned. The only course of action for the enchantress was to put a spell on the poor king. One day, while he was out hunting a white hart, she magically drew him towards her castle. The king was captured by the lady and taken prisoner. This didn't make the king love the enchantress, of course, and so with great spite she kept the poor man in prison in her castle. After a while, Isabella began to fret about Meliodas. After another while, she started to panic. After a slightly longer while, she was beside herself with anguish, and so, heavily pregnant, she decided to go and look for her husband. Taking just one of her ladies-in-waiting and her equerry, Governale, she made her way into the forest. They say that exercising when it is time is a good way of bringing about the birth of a child. Of course, Isabella was soon in the early stages of labour. She also started to feel very unwell. Maybe it was the stress of losing her husband. Maybe it was simply the dangers of childbirth in the ancient world. Either way, poor Isabella started to worry that she wasn't going to survive the birth. It took many hours, and Isabella suffered great pain. But eventually the baby was born there in the forest. Isabella, though, was spent. It was cold and wet in the forest, and the birth had weakened her to the point where she knew she wasn't going to make it. She took her little son in her arms, supported by Governale, and wept a few sorrowful tears. Then she spoke to him. Oh, darling boy, I've waited a long time for you, and I'm so happy that I've seen you at last. You are so beautiful, and I'm so sorry you have been born into sadness and sorrow. And I am sad that I will not be able to see you grow up into the fine young man I know you will become. She kissed the little boy on his forehead, and with her last remaining strength, spoke to Governale. When you see my lord Meliodas again, for I am sure that you will, then tell him about the birth of his son, and tell him how much I love both of them. Tell him the sorrowful way the beautiful boy was born, and tell him that he must have a sorrowful name. His name must be Tristram. With that, poor Isabella died. Weeping sadly, Governale took the baby in his arms, and carried him back to the palace. Now, 
When a king is missing, his heir is a small child, and there are a lot of powerful barons about, there is usually some trouble. The barons of the kingdom of Leones began to get restless, and talk spread about the court that one of them should make a bid to be king. Many of the ladies of the court were worried that poor little Tristram would be murdered, so that one of the lords could take over. Fortunately, there was at that time a wise and powerful wizard in the world, and he learned of the plots. Merlin magically released Meliodas from his prison. The king returned. All thoughts of rebellion ceased. The queen was buried with great honour. Most importantly, the king did what his wife had asked. He named the little boy Tristram. For seven years, Tristram was a happy and bright little boy. He was cared for by Governale and spent a lot of time with his doting father. Eventually, though, the affairs of state dictated that Meliodas should take another wife, and he married the daughter of King Howell of Lower Brittany. She was very beautiful and charming, but she was also a schemer. Before long, she and Meliodas had a couple of children of their own, and as far as she was concerned, Tristram was in the way. He was the king's eldest son, so he would inherit the kingdom. The queen wanted her own children to inherit. So, another wicked stepmother. The poor stepmother gets a rough ride in myth and legend, and of course, it is no different here. The queen took Tristram's favourite cup and filled it with water. Then she added poison. She put the cup out where the children were playing and smiled an evil smile. All she had to do was wait until Tristram was thirsty and he'd drink from the cup. Then he'd let out a blood-curdling cry, drop to the ground and die. Then her son would be the heir. Nice. Except, of course, it all went wrong, as these things have a habit of doing. The Queen's eldest son, just a little boy, spotted the cup. He was thirsty and he wanted water, so he picked up the cup and swigged the lot. Within a few seconds he was dead. The Queen was distraught, but she couldn't reveal the truth. Young children often died in those days, so nobody suspected the Queen of her wrongdoing. There was great sadness as the little boy was buried, but after that, life went on. Wicked stepmothers don't tend to learn from their mistakes. They don't make vows to turn their lives around and act honourably in the future. The Queen soon tried again, using exactly the same method. This time, though, she didn't escape detection. This time, it was Meliodas who picked up the cup. Before he had had time to drink, the Queen had dashed the cup from his hands. The court doctor sniffed the spilled liquid and announced that it was poison. Meliodas condemned his wife to die by being burned at the stake. On the evening before the Queen was due to die, Tristram went to see his father. Sir, he said respectfully, I would ask that you grant me one thing. What is it, my son? asked the Queen. I want you to give me the Queen's life. I would ask that you forgive her. Meliodas was not at all happy about this idea, but as was the custom, he granted his son's wishes. The Queen was allowed to live, although she was always watched carefully. The Queen was not the only one who wanted Tristram dead. Back in Cornwall, a prophet told King Mark that his nephew would bring shame and disgrace upon him. In order to prevent this, King Mark sent some assassins to murder the boy. They failed, but it was decided that Tristram wasn't safe. He was sent to France to be educated at the court of King Faramond. Governale went with him to keep him company and to keep him safe. Tristram grew and grew. By the time he was eighteen, he was a very big man, head and shoulders taller than most others. The king's daughter, Belinda, fell in love with him. Tristram was quite keen, 
but Gouvernail warned him not to get too close. It was not his destiny to stay in France and be with Belinda. Also, he would bring shame on his host if he carried on with his daughter. Tristram, sense of honour well in place, listened to the advice. Belinda, however, was not to be put off easily, and persisted. When she realised she wasn't going to get anywhere, spite took over. Belinda screamed and claimed that Tristram had attacked her. Faramond was not convinced, but he had to protect his daughter. Tristram was brought before him. Faramond, a clever man and a bit of amateur psychologist, watched his daughter as Tristram faced the charges. It was even more clear to the king that Tristram was not guilty. He gave her a sword and told her to strike her attacker if he really was guilty. She couldn't do it. She flopped to the ground and begged forgiveness. The king, rather indulgently, lifted her up, kissed her and agreed. He knew Tristram was innocent and he praised him. However, Belinda was his daughter and he couldn't keep them both at court. He ordered Tristram to leave. Governale had been busy while Tristram was being educated in France. He realised they may one day need a plan B, so he had made contact with King Mark. With much smooth talking and clever persuasiveness, he had convinced Mark to reconcile with Tristram. The young man was welcomed once more in Cornwall. Tristram and Governale left France and travelled to the far southwestern tip of Britain. Belinda couldn't cope with Tristram's banishment. Once he was gone, she killed herself with the very sword that her father had given her to strike Tristram. Before she did the deed, she wrote Tristram a letter. In it, she told him that he was to be one of the greatest knights, but that he must beware of love and the power it has over unsuspecting people. Tristram, very saddened by Belinda's death, kept the letter close to him. It is a shame he didn't take the advice contained within it. Tristram of Lyons was eighteen when he arrived back in Cornwall. As the ship came in sight of the coast, he gulped. He saw King Mark's castle, Tintagel, perched high on the blackest of cliffs. With its dark, cold walls and bleak, windswept location, it was the most foreboding and doom-laden castle he had ever seen. King Mark welcomed him warmly, and Tristram promised to serve him in whatever way he could. It wasn't long before he got the chance to do just that. For many years, King Mark had paid a financial tribute to King Agwisance of Ireland in order to keep the peace. Unfortunately, Mark had some money troubles and he was seven years behind in his payments. In the end, knowing he couldn't pay, Mark sent word to the King of Ireland that he just wasn't paying up any more. King Agwisance wasn't standing for this and he sent his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law just happened to be Sir Marhouse, a knight of the round table. Fair brother-in-law, he said. Get yourself over to Cornwall and teach that treacherous wretch King Mark that he is messing with the wrong man. Come back with my money or his head. Sir, replied Marhouse, I will gladly do this for you. No matter who is sent to fight me, I will defeat them all and bring back what is yours. Sir Marhouse landed in Cornwall, not far from Tintagel. King Mark was very worried. Sir Marhouse was a well-known and great knight, one of the most famous in all of Britain and Ireland. Mark knew he was in trouble. Every day Sir Marhouse sent a messenger to King Mark demanding that he pay up or else. King Mark ignored the messages and put a call out all over Cornwall. He asked that a brave knight come to Tintagel and take on Sir Marhouse. King Mark's barons came to Tintagel and met with the king. They suggested that he send a message to King Arthur asking for the aid of the greatest knight of them all, Sir Lancelot of the Lake. Mark shook his head sadly. 
Sir Lancelot was a knight of the round table, and he would not be able to come to his aid. It would not be honourable for him to fight against Marhouse, who was another knight of the round table, in order to settle a quarrel like this one. A young man overheard the discussion. He stepped forward. "'My lord,' said Tristram, "'make me a knight today, and I will take on this task for you.' King Mark gratefully knighted his nephew. If he had any doubts about the young man, then he kept them to himself. He immediately sent a message to Sir Marhouse that there was a good knight ready to fight for his cause. Sir Marhouse was not impressed. "'Tell your king that I will not fight anyone unless he has royal blood. He must be the son of a king or a queen.' This, of course, was no problem. Tristram was a royal prince. Sir Marhouse was informed that his opponent fitted the bill completely. It was agreed that they should meet on Samson's Island. Sir Tristram of Lyons rode out of Tintagel Castle and waited for Sir Marhouse. Before too long, the brother of the Queen of Ireland arrived. He looked at Tristram and laughed, unable to believe that King Mark had set such a young man to fight him, even if he was very big. "'Young knight,' said Tristram, he scoffed, "'what on earth are you doing here? I have matched the best knights in the world, and King Mark sends a boy to fight me. Go home, boy, you are not up to this challenge.' "'Ah, fair and well-proved knight,' replied Tristram mildly. "'I am a knight, and I am the son of a king. "'I asked my uncle for this quest, and I am fully capable of succeeding. "'You are one of the most famous and best knights in the world. "'Your deeds are known to all. "'I have not had the chance to show how great a knight I am, "'but now God has sent you to me. "'I am delighted that I am up against someone as great as Sir Marhouse. "'I will show you, and everyone else, "'that I am the right knight for this quest, and I will defeat you.' and liberate the country of Cornwall. Nothing more needed to be said. Both men mounted their horses and took their lances. They charged. Both strikes were true, and both men fell from their horses. Sir Tristram was badly wounded, a great gash from the spear in his side. He was strong enough to draw his sword, and he ran at Sir Marhouse, just as the knight from Ireland was drawing his. The fight was on. And on and on and on it went. For half a day, Sir Marhouse and Sir Tristram pounded each other with their swords, each of them receiving many terrible wounds. It was Tristram's youth that won the day. He summoned up some strength from somewhere and launched a blow towards Sir Marhouse's head. A mighty stroke it was, and it went straight through his helmet, through his skull and into his brain. It took most of Sir Tristram's remaining strength to pull the sword out of his opponent's battered skull. So deep was the blow that a fragment of Sir Tristram's sword broke off and remained in Sir Marhouse's grey matter. Marhouse dropped to his knees. Then he got up, threw away his sword and shield, and ran back to the ship. Sir Tristram picked up the sword and shield and returned to the court of King Mark. He had won the day, and Cornwall was free. No more did the kingdom have to pay a tribute to the King of Ireland. Sir Marhouse and his retinue sailed back to Ireland. When he arrived, Sir Marhouse went to see a doctor. The medical man peered into the wound in the knight's head and found a foreign object. It was, in fact, a shard of a Cornish sword. The doctor declared that he couldn't remove the piece of the sword without Sir Marhouse dying. Unfortunately for Sir Marhouse, he died anyway. The blow he received from Sir Tristram and the piece of sword left buried in his brain were too much for the great man. After he died, the piece of sword was removed. Sir Marhouse's sister, the Queen of Ireland, was distraught at her brother's death. She kept the fragment of sword, hoping that one day she would be able to have her revenge on the man who had killed Sir Marhouse. Sir Tristram was received at Tintagel in triumph. 
He was wounded, but he would surely live. His wounds would heal. For a few days he basked in the glory. But all was not well. Instead of slowly healing, Sir Tristram's large wound, the one inflicted by Sir Marhouse's spear, got worse. It didn't even start to heal. Unknown to Tristram, Governale and everyone else in Cornwall, Sir Marhouse hadn't been playing fair. His lance had been dipped in poison, and the poison was taking effect. King Mark was beside himself with worry. My nephew, I would give up my lands to have you well again. The King of Cornwall spent a month trying to find someone who could help Tristram. He cast around for holy men and doctors and anyone else who might have a cure. Praying was tried. Praying failed. Surgery was tried. Surgery failed. A really fantastic set of leeches were applied to Sir Tristram, but even the best leeches money could buy failed. Sir Tristram became more and more ill, and everyone thought he was going to die. It was only when a wise woman arrived at court that the answer was found, and the answer was not a good one. Your wound can only be healed in the country the venom came from. You need to be attended by someone skilled in the art of tending these wounds. King Mark acted immediately. He arranged for Tristram and Governale to be dispatched on a ship that night bound for Ireland. Sir Tristram took a harp with him and played beautifully as the ship crossed the Irish Sea. The ship soon arrived in Ireland. Sir Tristram and Governale came ashore near a castle where King Agrisant and his queen were in residence. They were taken to the castle and appeared before the king and queen. They were asked who they were and what they wanted. My lord, replied Sir Tristram, I am from the country of Lyons and I was wounded in a battle. I need a cure for my wound. What's your name? asked the king, and how did you get the wound? Sir Tristram thought fast. He couldn't admit who he was, because it was well known that a knight called Sir Tristram had killed Sir Marhouse, the queen's brother. He couldn't tell the king how and where he had received the wound, or who had inflicted it, so he made up a story. Now, either Tristram was a bit thick, or his wounds were preventing him from thinking straight. Probably the latter, given that Sir Tristram is not known for his lack of brain. The story that he made up wasn't a very good one, particularly when it came to his name. Er, uh, I was wounded, er, uh, fighting for the honour of a lady, and my name is, er, uh, Trantris. It seems that the king and queen were definitely a bit thick. Nobody worked out who he really was. You are welcome here, Sir Trantris. My daughter is very skilled in tending to wounds like yours, and I will charge her to take care of you until you are healed. Sir Tristram was taken to a room and cared for by the king's daughter. She cleaned and tended to his wound, and found that there was poison in it. Over many days she worked on the wound until Tristram started to recover. Pretty soon, it seemed, he would be whole once more. But something else happened while the Princess of Ireland cared for Sir Tristram, or Sir Tramtris as he was known to her. As the girl attended his wounds, Tristram began to fall in love with her. She was an incredibly beautiful young woman, and she was kind and attentive. Of course, she started to feel the same way about him. And so begins the second most important love story in the legends of King Arthur and his knights that of Sir Tristram of Lyons and La Belle Isoude. Next week, we'll find out whether Tristram's identity is ever discovered, and also find out what happens when King Mark decides he wants a wife. Until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.